The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Just want to wish everyone a happy Memorial Day weekend. You know, I have to confess that um, one of my favorite holidays was growing up was this weekend, and but it was really for all the wrong reasons because. Um, for many years, for me, all Memorial Day really signified was the kickoff to, to summer, right? The summer season and it meant swimming, sand volleyball, um, baseball, barbecues, picnics. But Memorial Day is, is so much more than that. And, and um, you know, A.B. referred to this when he was praying. And, and I think it would be a tragedy if we reduced this holiday to nothing more than just, you know, celebrating summertime fun, right? This is a day when we remember and we honor men and women who died while serving in the military, and um, those who paid this ultimate price for the freedoms that we enjoy. And, and this isn't to be confused with Veterans Day, which is really a day to honor anyone who's served in the military. But this day is specifically set aside for those, or to honor those who have died in battle. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. for a conference at work, and, and I went out for a jog one morning around the National Mall. And if you've ever been there, there's, you know, all these war memorials. And um, I remember coming across the Korean American War, um, or the Korean War Memorial. And when I got there, I, I just had to, to slow down and stop and just reflect upon what I was seeing. And, and if, if you've ever visited it, the whole scene is actually pretty eerie. Um, there's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to advance the slide here. There's just, this is, this is the scene here. And, and you just get this sense, it's very, it, it's, um, it just forces you to stop and think and, and be pensive about, uh, you know, the sacrifice that was made to, um, to be here, to enjoy the freedoms of this country. And I remember coming to the end of this memorial, and there was um, this quote that really stuck with me. It says on this stone engraved, Our nation honors her sons and daughters who answered the call to defend a country they never knew and a people they never met. And I remember reading this quote and, and feeling so moved. You know, it never really dawned on me until that moment that these soldiers paid the ultimate sacrifice, their very lives, for people that they, they never even personally met. And, you know, it was because of their great sacrifice that um, my life, the life of my extended family, is possible. Um, and it's such a picture of the gospel, I think. You know, these men and women, they lived and they died for something that they, they really believed in, so much so that they sacrificed their lives for it. And, and I think that's truly worthy of honor. But much like these fallen soldiers lived and died for something they believed in, this morning I want to talk about what it means to believe in something so much that it defines not just the way you think, but also the way you live. And how your life is the greatest proof and testament of what we truly believe. If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read verses 14 through 26, or you can follow along on the screen here. It says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, 
be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you command us in your word, in this very epistle, in fact, to ask you for wisdom. And your promise is that you will give it generously if we ask in faith. And so we ask for this wisdom uh, that, not, that does not come from ourselves or from this world, but your wisdom. And by your grace, we pray that this wisdom would not just change the way we think, but that it would transform our very lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You know, uh, to be honest, I, I wrestled a bit with whether I should preach on this passage because it's, uh, it's not a touchy-feely message. It's, uh, it's direct. It's blunt. It's to the point, and it might, it might make you feel uncomfortable. But um, this is also one of the um, most controversial passages in the Bible. And, in fact, it's, it's pretty well documented that Martin Luther, the great church reformer, disliked this book, the book of James, and he called it an epistle of straw because it seemed to be at odds with one of the most central doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. And it seems like James comes along and he says something completely different, doesn't it? But no one can deny that, that this is a part of God's word, and if it is the word of God, then God has a, a word for us through it. Amen. Uh, when, when I was in college, I, I taped a quote on my dorm room door so that every time I left, um, I would be reminded of this. It said, people may doubt what you say, but they will always believe what you do. People may doubt what you say, but they will always believe what you do. And I put this quote there because I wanted to remind myself that if I'm going to be, quote-unquote, Christian, if I'm going to be a witness for Christ then what people, what people see from the way I live is far more important than what words people hear from my mouth. Because the ultimate litmus test for what we truly believe is not what we say, right? It's, it's what we do. It's how we live. And I think we all need this reminder because, you know, sometimes there's an inconsistency there, isn't there? Sometimes we need that rebuke. And sometimes if we're living in that lie that somehow we are a believer, we are a Christian, and maybe we're not. We need that, that wake-up call. 
to come face to face with our own hypocrisy. And I think children are some of the best reminders of this. You know, growing up, I'd often hear my kids say, you know, but you don't wear a helmet when you ride your bike, right? (laughs) Or you don't finish all of your vegetables before you eat dessert. Or you don't put the toilet seat back down after you go to the bathroom. (laughs) You know, they're really good at exposing these hypocrisies in our life. But these are just small examples. But, you know, they can see very quickly that there's a disconnect between what we say and what we do. And when that happens, you know, we're forced to just look inward and ask ourselves, what is it that we truly believe? You know, does it line up with what we say? And so when we look in this passage, we see... um, First, that a genuine faith is demonstrated with action. A genuine faith is demonstrated with action. You know, there was a popular saying at um, the previous church that I attended, and it was this. It says, if your faith hasn't changed you, it probably hasn't saved you. If your faith hasn't changed you, it probably hasn't saved you. Those those are some hard words, aren't they? But I think it forces you, when you think about it, to really look deep inside and think about what ways in your life has your life been changed as a direct result of your faith in Christ? In what ways have you been transformed? And this is the question that James is asking through this passage. How do we demonstrate a genuine faith? How do we show that our faith is real? Now, when we go back to the first century and look at the churches that James was addressing, in this epistle, the problem wasn't that there were not any Christians. The problem was that there were way too many people calling themselves Christians, but they weren't living in a way that reflected that they were a true follower of Christ. There were wealthy landowners that were exploiting the poor to increase their wealth and their power. There were Christians who had uh, issues with anger, with favoritism. There were those in the church who were struggling with worldliness, and I think when you think about these things, it doesn't sound too far from the struggles that we, that we um, see in the church today, right? And James calls out those who profess to have a sincere faith, and yet they fail to live up to their profession. And he's challenging them, challenging them to really examine, do you really believe what you believe? And why do you fail to behave in a way that really reflects what you believe? And so he says, look, a genuine faith is demonstrated with action. You notice in verse 14, James opens with this rhetorical question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And it's a rhetorical question because this is a question that really is not meant, designed to to invoke a response. But the answer should be so obvious that the answer is no. And so James begins defining what true faith is first by, not def- by first defining what faith is not. Okay? It's not just words. It's not just rhetoric. It's more than talking the talk. You know, in the early church, there were plenty of people that were in need. Jewish Christians had been forced to leave Jerusalem. They were being persecuted very intensely. And they were like modern-day refugees. They really didn't have much. And life was hard, but life as a follower of Jesus was far more difficult. And to make matters even worse, these quote-unquote Christians were a big part of the blame because of the ways that they were treating one another. And so James follows his rhetorical question with the hypothetical situation, right? And in verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed 
and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? And here we have an example of someone in the church who's in obvious physical need. And all he's getting from his spiritual brothers and sisters are a few spiritualized words of comfort. Perhaps a token prayer. And staring directly into the face of someone in desperate need, this professed believer does nothing to help and only offers a few Christian cliches. And James dismisses this rhetorical faith as good for nothing. And it's not so much that the person says, what the person says that is wrong, right? It's the fact that what he says is all he does. It's all lip service. There's no life of service here. And so this believer tries to appear religious, and he tries to appear pious by saying the right words, by playing the part of a good Christian, but in reality, his true colors are shown by his lack of action. And the person in need is really no better off than before. And so in verse 17, James dismisses this rhetorical faith without works as dead. This is a dead faith. There's no pulse. There's no life here. There's no use. It's dead. And why is it dead? Because it's not a real faith. And so James isn't really contrasting faith and works here as two different ways to God, but rather he's trying to demonstrate that because this person doesn't have a real faith, it does not and it cannot produce real works. You understand? An authentic faith will produce real works. You know, back when our, uh, my oldest son, uh, Kayla, was about three years old, uh, we used to sponsor uh, a boy from Kenya. This is not his actual picture, but he looks similar. And his name was, was E.K. And um, we sponsored him through World Vision. And, you know, we'd get letters from E.K. from time to time, and he'd have his drawings on it. And his family would thank us for supporting them. And, and we'd pray for him together as a family. And he was kind of like a brother to us, you know, but on the other side of the world. You know, we, we intentionally chose another boy that was about the same age as Caleb at the time. And um, this is Caleb around that age. And one day, Caleb was, uh, you know, he was, having, he was having a difficult time finishing up his lunch. And so um, his mom, Kim, told, told him, look, you can't have your dessert until you're done eating. Right? And so... Slowly but surely, he worked his way through the rest of the, the lunch and finished off his plate, and then he quickly asked for dessert. And then, um, and then uh, Kim um, spotted that his, his, his milk, his glass of milk was still not finished either and said, look, you, you have to finish your milk too, okay, before you can have dessert. And so he just started looking at the milk and was like, oh, I need dessert right now. And so he started drinking the milk, and then he set it down, and then he stared at it. Then he'd take another sip, and then he put it down and stare at it again. He's like, it's not going down, right? And, you know, then Kim told him what every mother in this room has told your child, right? Caleb, your children starving in Africa <laughs> right now. They would love to have that, that cup of milk. Drink your milk, right? And so Caleb pauses, and he's staring at this never-ending cup of milk, and then suddenly his face lights up. And he says, oh, I have a good idea. I'll give my cup of milk to E.K. <laughs> and so we were all like, wow, what a great sacrifice you're going to make here, right? <laughs> you're going to give up your milk to this child in Africa. But the reality is, you know, I think it's such a picture of the human heart, you know, even in the, in the, in the three-year-old child, that 
You know, we're, we're so slow to help others unless it serves our own interests in some ways, right? And when someone expresses a real need, how often do we close the conversation, right, with, oh, I, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Or, hey, let me know how I can help you, okay? With really no intention to follow up, no intention to really pray, no intention to really meet this person's needs. And I think this is what's happening in the first century church is really there's just these cliches being offered, but really no action. That's exactly what James is saying here, that faith is proven much more than by just talking the talk, right? It's demonstrated with action. And so James is defining what genuine faith is first by defining what it is not, and it's not just about saying the right things. It's not just passive rhetoric. And then he moves on to verses 18 through 20, and we also learn what, gen- what else genuine faith is not. And he says, look, a genuine faith is demonstrated with action. And let me tell you what else it is not. It's not just talking the talk. It's also not just proper theology. Okay, it's more than just head knowledge. It's more than just knowing the right things. Right? When we look at verse 18 through 20, it says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so now again, James offers another hypothetical situation where there's this objector who steps in and says, look, one person can have faith, another person can have works, they're separate, it's all good. It's all good, as long as you have one or the other, right? And what matters is not whether you have one or the other, right? James responds and he says this, look, you cannot separate the two, faith and works. They go hand in hand. And then he caps it off by saying something that would have really shocked his Jewish audience. You know, this idea, this statement that you believe that God is one, you do well. This is uh, in verse 19. It re- really would have rang a familiar bell to, to the Jews that would have read this epistle. Because it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema. If you have any Jewish friends, you might be familiar with it. And this is the most basic confession of the Jewish faith, right? It's something that Jewish parents would often teach their children. They'd pray it every night before they go to bed. Uh, They'd teach them in schools. It was the most solemn part of of the Jewish um, worship service. And it says, Hear, O God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And so to put it in today's Christian context, I think it would be like saying, look, when someone says, oh, my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ, right? I mean, how often do you hear that, you know, when, when you're watching sports? You know, there was an interview, like a post-game interview with a Christian like Tim Tebow or even someone like uh, Steph Curry. And, you know, they're always pointing to the sky. And, you know, I just want to thank the good Lord, you know, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for blessing me with these gifts. And it becomes this cliche, doesn't it? And, and from that, you just automatically assume, oh, 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 you know, they're speaking truth there. They know. They know who Jesus is. And then from that, we just automatically assume that, you know, this person, they know the right things. They're a believer. They're Christians. And James does something crazy. He flips this upside down. He says, yeah, well, you know, even the demons, they know and they believe. And it sends shivers down their spine. But would you call their faith genuine? And James takes one of the most sacred statements 
among the Jews, this revered doctrine. He says, look, it doesn't matter if you know all the right things. It doesn't matter if you are able to recite all the right things. It doesn't matter if you believe all the right things because without action, without works, without fruit, it's useless. It's dead. And in the same way, you know, we can know all the right things. We can say all the right things. We can become an expert in Greek and in Hebrew and learn the original text. But how has that knowledge really served any purpose if we do not live out our faith? How has it made any difference in our lives? You know, a few weeks ago, I came across an article um, by Tim Keller, and he was identifying the three biggest idols in the Western church today. And I thought it was interesting because it really parallels the struggle of the first century church in, in James in many ways. And Keller says this. He says, one... Uh, The first idol is experience. People in the Western church today are looking for an emotional high. They're they're searching for this spiritual feeling of euphoria instead of really seeking a true relationship with God. It's all about me. It's all about the individual. It's all about my personal experience. It becomes a very subjective thing. The second idol is doctrine. It's become an idol in the Western church. That people take great pride in knowing the right things. Right? And somehow that, that this is, there's this belief that if, if we just know the right things, if we have all the answers, that is what God wants from us. It's about my knowledge. And the third thing is consumerism, the third idol. People who come to church in search of how to have their own personal needs or their family needs met through the church. Right? Well, I'm going to go to that church. It has a really good children's program. I'm going to go to that church. It really makes me feel good in worship. Right? I'm going to go to that church because, you know, they have free this or free that. It's all about my needs. You know, and James is defining what genuine faith is, and he's telling them it's not just about saying the right things. It's not just about getting the right things. It's not just about knowing the right things. But a genuine faith is demonstrated by action. And so he closes this passage, and he says, look, a saving faith is more than just talking the talk. It's more than just knowing the right things or knowing the right doctrine. It's about walking the walk, walking in faith. You know, Verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his work, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this is a very controversial passage here, especially this section. Before we move on, I just want to quickly address the controversy surrounding this passage because I think the key is really understanding the context. And, um, and I got a text from someone in the church a couple weeks ago asking, like, what does it mean to look in the context? I think Dr. Steve says it a lot. Like, we got to, you know, when you're studying the Bible, just to really understand the context. And this is the way I explained it very simply was um, you can't just read a verse and try to understand it based on that verse alone, Right? Um, it takes the work of looking at the context, which is the surrounding verses, right, the passage, the book even, understanding 
who God used to write it. What, who's the author? What's their background? What's the situation that he's writing it? Right? And who's the audience? This is context. And when we ignore this, we often fall into uh, misinterpreting Scripture to say something that it's really not saying. And you know, let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, when Dr. Steve injured his back, and he was laid up, and he wasn't at church, and I saw Betty right before service, and I just asked her, you know, how is he doing at home? She said, good. You know, Joseph, he hooked him up with some narcotics, and he's feeling much better now. And I remember, like, when she said that, I was like, man, I hope nobody else heard that, you know? I was just thinking, like, a newcomer just walking by and hearing, like, okay, one of our elders just hooked up our senior pastor with some narcotics, <laughs> you know? And they probably thought, well, this is not a church. This is, like, a, you know, a front for some drug operation, <laughs> But if you just hear that quote, you know, out of context, you know, then you can misinterpret that in a lot of different ways, right? But if you understand that, look, Joseph's a licensed medical professional. Dr. Steve injured his back. He needed some pain relief, and and so the the drugs were administered to him, right? And I think in the same way, you know, when we understand the context of this passage, it really helps us to understand, uh, to get past the controversy even behind it. And James 2.24, 2.24, you know, he says this person is justified by, w- by works and not by faith alone. And this appears to be in direct contradiction to Paul, who says, you know, when his teaching of justification, that a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law in Romans 3.28. And this is why some people have a hard time with this passage. But let me clear up any, this confusion with three points. Like, one, the audience and the circumstances of Paul and James were very different, right? Paul was dealing with Jewish legalists who taught that righteous uh, works like circumcision and strict observance of the ceremonial laws, that these were somehow a requirement of salvation. Whereas James is dealing with an audience that had perverted Paul's teaching, that faith alone justifies, and they're using this as an excuse to do nothing. And so there's two very different audiences with two very different issues or problems. And second is the use of the word justified by Paul and James. When Paul uses the word, he's speaking of the declaration of righteousness for the new believer, right? This is received by faith. But when James is using the word uh, justify, I think it's more as a legal declaration, right? Um, Or I'm sorry, Paul uses it as a legal declaration. James is using it as this this idea that this is ultimate vindication, ultimate vindication, the final day of judgment, much like Jesus uses it when he says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned, okay? This is vindication, the final day of judgment. And then lastly, Paul and James are actually more similar than you would think because um, even in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, many of you may know this word, uh, verse, is for by grace you've been saved through faith. If you go to Ephesians 2.10, right after that, he says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which he has ordained for us since the beginning of time. So just like car batteries were created to start cars, you know, Paul says, look, we were created to do good works. This is the product of our saving faith. And James is saying, look, what good is a car battery if it's dead? Right? If we're saved by grace and we're created for the purpose of doing good, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, then shouldn't our salvation be demonstrated by the good that we do? And so I think understanding this, it becomes clear that Paul is stressing the priority of faith, the priority of faith within salvation, whereas James is stressing the proof of faith for those who claim to be saved. Okay, it's a question of priority of faith or the proof of faith. And these two ideas, they don't contradict each other. They they complement one another. And so it's not faith or works. 
It's not faith and works. It's a faith that works. Okay? It's a faith that works. So coming back to this text, um, in order to complete his argument, James closes by mentioning two very familiar Old Testament examples to his Jewish audience. And he says, he brings up Abraham and he brings up Rahab as two concrete examples of faith in action. And the genuine faith demonstrated and proven by works through these examples. Abraham demonstrates his faith in action by obeying God's call to sacrifice his son. Rahab demonstrates her faith in action by helping God's people, the spies, remember, in need, Joshua. And I love how James, he uses two Old Testament examples that could not possibly be any more different from each other. You know, Abraham is this beloved patriarch of the Jewish faith. Rahab is this nondescript Gentile prostitute. And I think James does this to prove a point. And he's saying, look, it, it, it doesn't matter your stage in life, whether you're young or old. It doesn't matter your station in life, whether you're a patriarch or you're a prostitute. It doesn't matter your status in life, if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. You can have faith. You can have a faith that is active and a faith that is demonstrated by your life. And so in verse 22, we see James' faith was active. We see that James says that faith is active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Right? I love the way that the, um, the NET and the NASB Bible translates this. It says, instead of completed, it says his faith was perfected by their works. And this, this word, I think, brings up a picture of just being motivated. The good works is motivated by faith. That good works um, strengthens and builds up and grows our faith. It perfects it, right? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter in the Bible is often known as the hall of faith. Because after it defines who faith, what faith is in the first few verses, it provides this long list of Old Testament characters who are commended for their faith. And what you'll notice when you read is more than just reading off names like a graduation ceremony. It reads, by faith, blank, did this. By faith, blank, did that. And so, by faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah constructed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah conceived. By faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Moses refused. By faith, the people crossed. By faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. These are all action verbs. See, faith is not just a mental or a spiritual exercise. Faith is defined by action. It's not meant to just stay in the realm of the mind and the body or the mind and the spirit, but to be demonstrated even in the physical world through our own bodies, through our hands and feet. You know, when we moved into Wheeling as executive pastor, um, I got to say, you know, I've been very excited about, you know, the opportunities and the doors that it will open being here in this community. Um, I've said this before, I think, in one of our meetings, but... Uh, Wheeling to me is such an interesting suburb because I feel like it's the ugly stepchild 
It's like the armpit of the North Shore. <laughs> because it's like you have this blue-collar, like, you know, uh, ethnically diverse, lower-income community kind of stuck and surrounded by all this, like, white-collar, upper-middle-class, you know, wealthier communities. And really, the truth is, in, in Wheeling here, there's no shortage of, of felt needs you know, among, the, among the people that live here. And I know that many of you share in that same excitement. I've sat with many of you, talked to some of you, and there's been an expression, a real desire to help and to serve, you know, this community, to be the hands and feet of Christ, whether it's, you know, rebooting this ESL program that we did many years ago or serving the community with music classes. Um, we're entering this new season in our ministry where we no longer, I think, have to expend all this energy around, you know, moving crates, <laughs> packing the trailer, this whole idea of mobile church. Now that we have a building, right? And we can really focus our energies and our efforts on serving others in the coming months. Um, Dr. Steve is really going to unpack, I think, what this means for us this summer, not just philosophically and biblically, but also, you know, organizationally. And so without stealing his thunder, I I just want to throw that out there. Like, this message is really designed to just get us thinking about what it means to really put our faith into action. But I, I don't want you to walk away from this message thinking like, well, since I'm a Christian, you know, I, I guess I should go sign up for a community service project to prove my faith, right? It's so much more than that. I want us to walk away with a sense that whatever God is calling you to do, if you just truly trust him, then just obey. Obey what he's called you to do in that moment that he's called you to do it. This is the mark of a believer, of true faith. You know, there's this quote by Oswald Chambers I love. It's a little bit long, but he says it so well. He says, All of God's revealed truths are sealed until they are opened to us through obedience. You will never open them through philosophy or thinking, but once you obey, a flash of light comes immediately. Don't say, I suppose I will understand these things someday. You can understand them now. And it is not study that brings understanding to you. It's obedience. Even the smallest bit of obedience opens heaven, and the deepest truths of God immediately become yours. Yet God will never reveal more truth about himself to you until you have obeyed what you know already. God will never reveal more truth about himself to you until you have obeyed what you know already. Those are powerful words, aren't they? Do you want to grow in your faith? Then grow in your obedience. If you trust him, you will do what he says. And as the old hymn goes, trust and obey, but there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to what? To trust and obey. Now I want to close today's message with a brief video. It um, comes from the CBS Evening News. And it's about two men who, again, couldn't be any more different. But it's such a powerful story of a man who demonstrated the genuineness of his faith through an important life decision that he had to make and how God was honored you know, through it. So let's just watch this together. I love how the narrator says, Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith 
and his hope for a kinder mankind. And he wants to be an example. So what a living testimony of the power of faith being lived out in the life of a believer. I just want to close with this last thought. You know, the book of James, what do we know about James, the author of this brief epistle? Most scholars believe that this was not James, one of Jesus' closest disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John. But rather, this is James, literally the brother, flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Think about that. This was a man that played with Jesus, probably slept in the same bed as Jesus, learned carpentry alongside Jesus. Think about how difficult it must have been for him to accept that the brother that he grew up with was claiming to be the Son of God, Lord of the universe. You know, this James knew Jesus' teachings well. It's obvious in his letter that he has this very keen grasp of the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, most scholars don't believe that James actually came to faith until after the resurrection because he's conspicuously absent in all the gospel accounts. So what was it that changed his life from one of skepticism to one of faith? What transformed him from becoming absent during Jesus' ministry to being all over the early church in Acts? What could have motivated him to, to be the shepherd of the church in Jerusalem and become a martyr for his faith? You know, we don't really know, but I, I think James witnessed this remarkable consistency in the life of Jesus between what he said and what he taught, how he acted, how he lived, and even ultimately how he died. You know, when Jesus calls out to his disciples to forgive 70 times 7, they're shocked. And yet on the cross, when his enemies are hurling insults at him, what does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right? When the disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest in the coming kingdom, what does Jesus do? He pulls out a bowl and he begins to wash their nasty feet. There's nothing glamorous about that. When he says, love your enemies, what does he do? He reaches out to the Samaritans, to the tax collectors, to the sinful, the prostitutes, the rejects of society, and he accepts them. He grants them dignity and he speaks truth and love. There is no greater example of a man who lived out his faith in action with perfect consistency than Jesus Christ. And I think James saw that firsthand, and it took a whole lifetime to see it. And it's through that witness that he himself is able to not just live a life that's consistent in his own faith, he became a martyr, but to call out to the church, you live out your faith. Do what you say you believe. Trust and obey. And at this time, I want to call the worship team up and just ask us to just bow our heads in prayer. These are hard words, I think, to hear. Because I think no matter where you are, it's a wake-up call. And whether you've been going to church your whole life, or you haven't really been going to church at all. It's an invitation to really examine the faith that we profess, that we believe. Has your faith changed you?
If not, then we need to ask ourselves, will this faith save us? A life of faith is a life of service, of action, of obedience. And it's more than just serving the poor or meeting other people's in need. Sometimes it's as simple as forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it. It's that act of faith, that obedience. It's that action verb. God is calling us to just trust and obey. Put your faith in action. Live for the one that you say you love. Just take a moment and just let the Lord speak into your heart if His Spirit is convicting you in any way. Ask God to grant you the faith to obey, to live out your faith, to act, to do what He's calling you to do, whatever it may be. Do it in faith. After a moment, our worship team will close us with a couple songs.